0: This Expert Insights evening was recorded in front of a live audience on the 29th of March, 2017. The discussion topic is Cultural and Contextual Considerations in Mental Health Practice. On the panel we have Dr. Deba Pomon, Senior Clinical Consultant at the Transcultural Mental Health Centre, Gabriella Salabert, Clinical Psychologist and Senior Cross-Cultural Clinical Consultant at New South Wales Transcultural Mental Health Centre and our lived experience representative, Manoush. So, I might start with you, Gabriella, but feel free, any of you, to hop on. Um, Certainly, as a clinician, we're often told we need to sort of have cultural sensitivity training or cultural competence training. Uh, what do we actually mean by that and what would you say are the key components of cultural sensitivity or cultural awareness? Mm
1: -hmm. Yes, it's quite holistic, I would say. Uh, We all have a culture and actually we all sometimes have many cultures um, because there are many subcultures within Australia as well. Um, Just the first step is being aware of their own culture. It's not that we come always from a neutral point of view, objective, you know, scientific, with no ideology and no cultural component in our interventions. First, we need to be aware where we come from, and then when we can appreciate the difference. And then some curiosity, professional curiosity, and also some personal curiosity in learning a bit of geography, a bit of history around the world, you know, especially in these turbulent times. Um, yes, and then and then realize uh, the times of migration of uh, people is very important, of your clients, more differentiating migrants from refugees, people who volunteer to come, you know, to Australia, um, and then from from people that, uh, clients that didn't have any choice but to come um, for survival reasons. Um, it, at the main professional level, at the personal level, it's just. Um, um, your own awareness and the awareness of the other person's journey without generalizations. Because we have in Australia different waves of migrants coming from different countries, <coughs> even from the same country, different waves of migrants from economic migrants to refugees coming from the same country in different times of history. That's why just not knowing anything sometimes is good, <laughs> because allows you to explore a bit more in a more, um, you know, Open way, yeah, yeah. I can,
2: can I add to that? Uh, to be culture sensitive basically means that uh, no one expects any clinician to knows about every culture. No. It is that's not. What what is it about? It is about to be sensitive that there are differences. Plus, don't uh, stereotype. You know, I mean, if like I'm like you, I'm from Iran too. I mean, the, the country that we are from has many different subcultures. If you are Kurd or you are uh, you know, Turk or wherever geographically you live, you could be totally different people. And I'm sure in Australia as well, even in that same Sydney, if you're from Eastern Suburb or West End, uh, I'm not sure how culturally um, similar you are and how different you can be. So um, we need to know that uh, Just seeing someone from Iran or Australia doesn't necessarily mean that they categorize with the same behavioral components. That's one thing. The second thing is that the clinician be aware of their own biases. This is important that we know what our biases are and if we are able to work with this client or not. That, That awareness, that consciousness is very important.
1: And also the concept of our intervention because different cultures have different levels of uh, understanding for counselling or psychologists and different generations too within the same country. Um, there are some cultures that don't even have a word to talk to strangers about personal problems outside the family like Cambodians and other, you know, Asian cultures. And there are some cultures that they consume much more psychology than we do, you know, and, and, and for everyday relationship problems. That's why it's, uh, your role is very important to clarify from the understanding of your client about your role as well and the expectations. And that's the first uh, clarification. Yeah.
0: And just staying with you both for a minute longer, from a mental health perspective, if we're making a cultural assessment, what are the important things we really need to understand if we're going to work with someone in the mental health space about their cultural background?
1: Well, uh, the perception of the symptomatology is very important. If you are an African and you are raised in the bush and All your tribe is telling you that your ancestors are there and they train you to see your ancestors. The context is very important uh, of the symptoms, the description that goes beyond translation with interpreters, the cultural meaning for that person there are different uh, physical expressions of the symptomatology, different uh, even facial expressions, the words that are described the problems, some cultures tend to describe the symptoms through physical complaints, like uh, in general, generalizing Asian community, they go more to the GPs to complain about physical problems, headaches, you know, digestive problems, and they don't say I'm sad, I'm depressed, I'm in grief, you know, I just separated. Well, and some cultures, um, for example, when we're working with all the perinatal cases, um, there are different, uh, of course, cutting scores for symptoms of distress. And um, I'm Argentinian and, you know, the Spanish speaking like the Arabic, we are very expressive. Mm-hmm. And our cutting point was different than the Chinese, that they were all um, not disclosing the symptomatology. And the concept of family is very different, um, very different. Um, every, well, all of us here, if we close our eyes and I say the word family, we have a different representation in front of us. Some people visualise mom, dad and the child in the flat, and some visualise 15 people or 20 from the family. I mean, we all have a different concept. Um, Normally all cultures around the world, they regard, the, the, the family, like uncles, grandparents, cousins, as the main nuclear family. When we are doing assessments, when we are doing genograms, you cannot cut off, you know, the whole family and only take a uh, mom, the child. And actually, it's not even true even for the Australian population, because um, there are so many intergenerational issues that are running, and, and all the genetics are showing that, you know, and the epigenetics are showing that intergenerational trauma, etc., including in this population, that it's always very important to open the field and take into account the context of the society and the previous generations. For us, in our model, is essential. Just to add to what uh, Gabriela
2: said, I, I mean, if we approach... I'm sure everyone does, biopsychosocial model. The part psychosocial maybe is the core of our world, because delusion is delusion everywhere, in any language, in any country. I mean, I may think um, Malcolm Turnbull here, someone in America, would think they are Trump, but they are the same substance, you know. I mean, the content is different, but the presentation is exactly the same. So that part is very cultural. But the main part that, as Gabriella said, is the psychosocial part, that we have a lot of input. I mean, the role in the family texture, it's very different in different culture. The uh, structure, the belief, the role of male and female, um, parents, intergenerational generational issues, and plus, as Gabriela said, it's very different who is sitting in front of you. I mean, if a person got on a piece of wood and got to the sea to get to Australia, have a very different history than someone who bought a plane ticket and came here. The people we get, there are issues in three levels. Uh, What they left behind... What was the journey from uh, you know A to B, mm-hmm. and what are uh, their issues to cope with now?
0: so it is before, through the process and now and so I might move to you, Manoush. Um It'd be great maybe to tell us a little bit more perhaps about the cultural background and beliefs in your family, both generally and then more specifically perhaps around mental health
3: sure so. I guess I consider myself very Australian, so I, because I was raised here. Um, I've been back to Iran a few times, three times. Um, fantastic place, but it's always a cultural shock when I go there. Um, generally speaking, I think with, with I've noticed that with the insights that you're both providing, um, you are very focused on clients who have experienced trauma, whereas for me, I think whilst I have experienced a particular trauma, in, in a psychological sense, it wasn't something that, like... It, it wasn't something that, like, the anxiety that I have felt isn't as a result of that. It's something that I feel has been with me ever since I can remember, really. And unfortunately, I think... Again, it could be different with um, many cultures. Like, like you said, there's different, different subcultures within the Iranian culture. But I, generally speaking, I think, in the Middle Eastern culture, um, there is this tendency to not... If something is not a biological issue per se, so if it's not a cut or it's not a wound or it's not something that you can physically see, it therefore does not exist. There's just no empathy, unfortunately. I mean, even from people like your parents who... Like, there is. Naturally, like, a mother and a father are going to care for their children at the end of the day. They love them, but when they don't have that awareness, they just don't understand. Um, and both my parents are quite educated, but then, you know, when they can't understand, the difference between a physical symptom and, like, something like I have a cold and a flu, and I have anxiety and I'm having a panic attack. Um, to your point, it's very much been, well, you know, you need to just control your thoughts. That's yeah. what I've often experienced, and you just need to be strong. And the amounts of times I've heard that you just need to be strong is incredibly frustrating um, because. You know, like, I don't think it's... It just reinforces... and it, it reinforces the stigma and it reinforces this belief that I myself had for a very long time that um, I was weak and that, like, there was something wrong with me because of my own lack of awareness around mental health issues. Do you feel like you grew up kind of knowing it's something you didn't talk about
0: or you didn't share? Or was it kind of confusing? Like, how did you make sense of it that you were experiencing
3: this? I didn't, really, for a very long time. And that was because, I mean... In in your younger years, like, it just wasn't... It, by young years, I mean, like, 10, 11, 12, 13. Um, I was probably more aware of the physical symptoms of anxiety than anything else. Like, I, you, I didn't really understand my thought process, but it was very much like heart palpitations or, like, sweaty palms or as soon as I'd leave the house, I'd need to... Like, it's kind of weird, but I need to go to the bathroom. Like, you know, like, physical symptoms. And... Or not being able to fall asleep, like, little things like this. And, like, for a long time, I thought... Okay. I didn't really think much of it, in fact, and it wasn't until, like, year 9, year 10 where the, those symptoms of obsessive-compulsive disorder actually became so much... They were so much more manifested and it started to actually take over daily parts, like my daily functioning. Um, I couldn't function like studying, I couldn't do anything at home. And it's so—it's such a pervasive, like I'd call it a disease because it takes over every aspect of your life. And unfortunately, people's understanding of OCD is like, people use that term, they throw it around and it's like, I have OCD or like, when really, it, it's its quite a debilitating thing. Um, and particularly because my compulsions were not very physical. So I didn't have physical compulsions. It was very much in my head, which was even more frustrating. We got worse in like, in, when I was about 13, 14, um, and I just I didn't really understand, um, even then I didn't understand what it was, like I didn't understand um, why it was that I was thinking the way that I was. And with OCD you very much get stuck in a gear, I feel like, and it's very hard to get out of that, like the rumination and like all that type, it's horrible. <laughs> it's very hard to get out of it. Um, and I felt like a lot of people around me at school didn't understand or I'd, I'd be very fixated on something and I'd struggle. Um, and then at the same time when I was about year nine, you'd End of year 10, I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. And that became the psychological thing that I was experiencing, it became a complete secondary issue um, naturally, and I had to go through about nine months of chemotherapy. Um, so going to like the hospital and coming home, it's funny because there was a psych ward at Westmead Children's Hospital, and I always passed it, and I was just like, I really need to go there. Like I really need to speak to a psychologist and actually discuss um, this. And like, but I just, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And I remember, I'd, again, I'd tell my parents that. This is what I'm feeling, or like even they could see the physical manifestations of, of a compulsion. Like people's perception of OCD is that it's you're a germaphobe, and that's just one facet of it. And so being work, like being at times an inpatient and an outpatient at a hospital, there were times where I was washing my hands like heaps of times, and my mum could see that, and she was just like, you gotta stop doing that. It wasn't until the chemo ended that I actually went and saw a psychologist, as like a child psychologist, and I. Mm-hmm. I was about six, 17 at the time, and it was then that I was diagnosed with OCD. You know, my parents came from a background, I'll just explain very quickly, where it was the end of the Iran and Iraq war and my mum was pregnant with, with me and she was telling me that um, we'd be sitting inside a house and, um, in, in Tehran, which is the capital of Iran, and Saddam Hussein would literally shoot off a missile from Iraq it'd fly over and you could see it, but you don't know where it would land. So you could see it sitting in one of your houses and you just didn't know. Um, and Sometimes she talks about her experiences and the stuff they had to go through and the fact that they left Iran to raise my brother and myself here. Um, And they're like, you don't know what hardship is. And I hate that. I absolutely hate that because it invalidates your experience and the fact that this is a completely different issue to that. Yes, I haven't experienced.
1: And also that you were there. Absolutely. Were I was in your stomach. So it's just like,
3: I shouldn't be crying for this reason. I should be crying that I've lost hair because of the chemo, but I shouldn't be crying because I'm going through this thing up here that my parents can't relate to. Um, so very much a lot of um, you just need to be strong, just deal with it. Like, I have a lot of things and I left my family in Iran and this is, you know, I, I deal with my thoughts and you need to learn to do the same thing. Um, but yes, mum did come with me. She was like, if you want to see a psychologist, I'll take you. She came with me. Um, but even like at the initial psychologist appointment, I feel like there was judgment by my mum. That, that's just my fit. You know, I just feel like she was just like almost embarrassed.
0: Sometimes I find some of these cultural beliefs, for example, in patriarchal societies, are so deeply held, it's really hard to get movement in them. What's your experience around this?
2: It takes ages to change. This sort of culture change is not an overnight thing and you may you may just make a little difference, but yes, that's it. And a lot of time that works against people, like for example in cases of domestic violence, a lot of women think that is the way it has to be, you know. Uh, because he's a man, he ha- he got the power, he's a breadwinner, so why should, I mean, this uh, culture of silence and endurance is very much integrated in that type of cultures. And, um, you know, there's a lot of, sorry, psychoeducation involved, a lot of back and forth sessions. You may be able to make a little change or sometimes not at all.
1: Yes. Um, We provide a lot of psychoeducation to families. Uh, Many mental health teams, after seeing clients, they call us to follow up the cases with the families just to provide all the psychoeducation and the adjustment um, to understand the journey, you know, that the person has to do for a recovery. And because we, as clinicians, we know that the person is one hour with you, but the other 23 with the family seven days a week, if you don't involve the family in these cases, you... And then it's when you encounter the different ideologies and beliefs. Like Diva was saying, in case of domestic violence, it's a challenge. Um, Today I'm coming from the Refugee Conference, for example, and that issue was highly discussed. Because the loyalty that people have with each other after being in a survival mode, you know, coming from hell, through years and then when there is a domestic violence uh, situation in your home, the loyalty with each other is so much that uh, calling the police to take your husband to the prison is not, you know, it's not any husband that you met around the corner and you can meet another one because you are in the same place with your whole family giving you support. is It's a whole history. These people have books, you know, behind them. That's why it needs more psychoeducation. It needs a lot of more uh, insight about safety. Usually women do it because of their children, and especially with the legislation here that they know that they can get in trouble if they don't protect their own children, or if the children witness domestic violence, they are at risk of losing, you know. the custody themselves. They do it because of their children. but. Um, it's very uh, hard to leave the survival mode, even if they are safe, and to understand the system and, and translate the system. But they do it, they do it every day, but requires like extra steps. It's, uh, you have to see like the whole dimension of the history where they come from. Um, and many women will, or men, because there are men also that suffer <laughs> domestic violence, but in general, women. Um, They will do it in their own country, with the whole family, but here they find the system so strange and they feel so lonely that they they stay in the the violence.
0: Staying with that, that idea of being stuck, as a GP, I'll often see people coming in with somatic presentations of actually a mental health. So I can say, yes, this is depression, this is anxiety, but... There is no framework, no cultural framework for me to move from a physical diagnosis to a mental health diagnosis. How do you help move people along from a physical understanding of their symptoms to accepting a mental health um, explanation for how they're feeling?
1: There are our psychologists and social workers work a lot, you know, in that model and they try to normalize that that it is okay to feel fear it is okay to uh, and 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 sometimes just presenting the issue in terms of well um People like you that go through all this adjustment in Australia, you know, with a system that they don't know, facing financial difficulties or fearing this and that, we know family, we know the, they normally feel, you know, anguish, they feel fear, they, they cannot sleep at night. This is something that happened to you, just normalizing because many societies is the panic of being called the bad mother. For example, what you were saying in terms of. <gasps> people will think that I'm the bad mother, you know, I'm working in the perinatal area, and that's the main fear of women saying, I'm not coping because, you know, they are very depressed or because they have anxiety. So that is what the people out there, are they coming to take my children away? My community will blame me, bad mother, bad mother, you know, all these stereotypes that they have themselves. That's why just normalising the experience is the beginning um yeah and plus uh,
2: what you said there are many different motives to do so i mean it depends why the person try to hide behind the physical uh, you know presentation of the situation as gabriela said sometimes it is uh, doubting their strength if they are not well enough i had a case that he was really Insisting that he has only physical issues because he was concerned about his visa situation. You know, if he has a mental illness, something may happen. There are very different motives. But to answer your question, the main thing is psychoeducation. I mean, what are the signs? Sim- uh, yes, you can have all, as you know, Minuš said, you can have palpitation, you know, sweaty hands, and all that, which is very physical. But at the same time, this could be very much the sign of the anxiety. Mm -hmm. So these educations are very important Mm -hmm. to bring them into the context of, and as Gabriella said, and you know, when they get to that stage, the second level, there's nothing wrong with having this
3: anxiety or depression or whatever. Can you comment a bit on the use of interpreters in clinical settings?
1: We work with interpreters as well because we also do cross-cultural work. We don't have all the clinicians in all language and dialects. We also work with interpreters and, and you are right. Like, um, even if you, uh, first we are all human beings and we are all em- have empathy with each other and compassion. Otherwise you wouldn't be doing the profession, you will be doing something else. And second, you know, is uh, that some interpreters, um, they try to a bit overtake, you know, your role and engage in helping when it's not their role. Um, that's why it's so important to you professional interpreters that they they, they just, uh, you know, um, yes, they just walk away from their own interpretations. But um, yes, um, actually, if you are interested in that, um, we helped to produce last year with interpreter service um, some resources that are in the website that are for free for clinicians are in the Health Department website. Um, to train uh, interpreters and to help clinicians to use interpreters in the community. And they give you all those scenarios, you know, all of them, family assessments, um, clients that are not compliant or are not accepting, all these five different scenarios, walking in hospitals and, and even an interpreter, just to give you a bit of an insight of uh, the common problems that everybody faced, you know, about that. I had assessments, I remember, with an African uh, client in a refuge that she was uh, there with her children. That first, because it was a refuge, they didn't, bring, they didn't let me bring people you know, from outside for confidentiality reasons. And then I had uh, the telephone. You know, the TIS is called, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was great. I thought I was completely traumatized you know, with that. But the woman, it was a man. The answer from purse, I don't know from where her and she found that fantastic because it wasn't somebody from such a small African community that was going to judge her. They didn't see her face. I didn't have to disclose her name. I just used it as a service myself. And he was interpreting with the telephone there. He wasn't invasive, you know at all. He did the right intervention for the whole hour. And at the beginning, I thought that it will, it will be a problem, and then it will be, you know, very successful for that reason. Sometimes, you know, especially in, in small communities like that, where confidentiality is a big issue, um, yes, or, or refugees with high content of political disclosure, you know, and also, you know, not knowing what is the ideology of uh, the interpreter is I uh, things. Normally what you do when you use interpreters is that you try to have a bit of uh, a conversation before and then after that the debriefing as well, because if you're going to use the same person for the session too, you know, all these issues have to be clear before and after.
0: Sometimes working with asylum seekers, it can be difficult to find healthcare that is affordable and also appropriate for their needs. Have you found any ways of getting around this?
1: Um, in general, I'm a bit concerned. Thank you for raising that, because with all practitioners, not only GPs that are working in the private area, and don't get me wrong, I have a private practice myself, but not being aware of community resources around them, not being aware of organisations that I can do the same for free, for example, we do all the IQ tests for the children in the school tests that normally are $700, $600 in the community, and sometimes with better uh, tests because are more culturally appropriate, um, but uh, we see that some families have been spending thousands of dollars getting loans for that, and they, and nobody asks, you know what I mean? It's, uh, um, I don't know if the information is very fragmented, now that we are all bombarded with technology, if the information is very fragmented, and sometimes before there were less things, but they were more visible. <laughs> now, you know, all these services are, fi- are difficult to see. Or if the isolation of working in a practice with many clients are disconnecting practitioners from the community unless they are pushed for professional development to that point, you know, for registrations. But there is a gap there. I see GPs and other clinicians that are excellent and looking at listening, the community health centre around or looking for, you know, um, parenting groups in the area or et cetera. But some others, they have no clue, and they are sending them to specialists, extremely expensive, and, and, and people feel frustrated and disengaged.
3: Can you talk more about your approach to trauma in refugees and some of the interventions you might use to help?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a very complex
2: issue, of course, and depends on the intensity and the chronosity of the trauma. I mean, it's very different. There's not a cookbook thing, but the similar, if, if I can answer you, the similar approach is basically based on three main issues. That is reassurance, safety, and confronting the traumatic event. These are the main global thing in approaching any traumatic uh, experience, but as Gabriela said, it is very case-based, and often the cases we are getting really have very complex trauma. Generally speaking, this is the, if I answer a cookbook approach, these, these three issues are the main.
1: We try to always see the psychosocial context, because if you don't see a psychosocial context, you don't understand you know, what's going on. And the psychosocial context lasts more than one generation, second and third generation as well. Um, that has been widely documented in Europe after the, the last uh, World War. Um, the first generation is the one that needs the roof and the food and is the one that is in the survival mode, but the trauma is more expressed in the second and the third generation. But because they are not in the same context, they don't understand, they don't link, you know, the relationship. um, With migration, unfortunately, uh, all the main information and the roots are cut and if the family doesn't explain the history, the second and the third generation don't have a clue why they experience the symptoms that they have. And that's another layer to complicate, you know, the problem. If you don't see the context, nothing has a meaning. Everything <coughs> is a fragmented type of presentation with symptoms that are not associated. And understanding is very liberating as well, when you understand the the, the, the context. Uh, you, really, uh, re- you really reflect and, and you are more at peace with your own history or your own family history or your upbringing.
0: Manoush, how is it with your parents now when you have come forward with your mental health concerns after all the reservations that they have had about this?
3: The relationship with my parents now is completely fine, like, in terms of the, the anxiety that I have. Yeah. And throughout, throughout, like, as time passes, I think the experience that I had, like, in talking about having um, cancer as a trauma, that has also caused... Separate to, like, I think the chemical imbalance, if I could say, that exists in my brain, because I feel like there are times where I've gone off medication and I feel like the job that I work in as well... I think the gentleman at the back mentioned that some, like, cultures are very patriarchal, but I think some professions are like that too. So I work in the legal profession and sometimes I cannot even... Like, it's just expected that anxiety is, is part of the job. And so you can't really say... There were times where I was experiencing serious anxiety and I really, seriously, I couldn't even take time off work because of that. Mm. Um, it was just a no type of... You just couldn't raise it. Um, but I um, forgot where I was going with that.
1: Mm.
3: When, I did, when I did go see a psychologist and stuff, I think because, because of the, the pain that I felt that started to become very physical, so I was very sad quite often or crying a lot and stuff like that, my parents... It was at that point that they said, if you want to go to a psychologist, we'll take you. And they took me and we sat down and we spoke with the psychologist. And then I had to see a few psychologists to actually find one that was the right fit for me. Um, And at that point, I started to go by myself because you start to gain more independence and a lot more confidence. Um, And it just got to a point where it does depend on the individual. So some people just don't, don't, I like to think that I'm resilient. Um, so I, I think that if I wasn't with some of the stuff that I experienced with my family and my friends as well, who do not have any understanding of... And not by any fault of their own, they just haven't experienced it. Um, so they don't know that what anxiety looks like, and so they can't empathise with you at all. Or what depression looks like, they, they just... They don't really know what that means. Um, so the relationship's a lot better now, and I think now, when I do experience anxiety, your parents can see that. They can see that in different situations, The anxiety is just heightened or, you know, like the trauma that I experienced, I think, because of the cancer years later, completely separate from the anxiety issue, there were, when you're 15, you're 16, you're a child, I think. And so when people tell you that you might have fertility issues later, you don't, you don't understand that as a concept or they tell you that you need to freeze eggs, you don't get that stuff or that you need to get, it's just like, yeah, okay, whatever, let's get it over and done with. And me, my, like, throughout high school and throughout university, I was very... Um, focused on my academics, so t- the fact that I was diagnosed with, uh, you know, cancer was, I never asked why it was sort of just like, okay and I didn't understand it either is my point so as a child you're very resilient and you just do what you're told and you get on with it but it wasn't until years later so like when I was 22, 23 that, that I went through a serious bout of, i don't. to this day I don't even know what it was, like maybe unaddressed grief or whatever it was where you experience a lot of Crying and then it turned into, like, this panic attack type of thing. And my parents have seen that history, whether it be anxiety or it be depression, and they know it's very real. I don't know. Over time, they do recognise that, yes, it is a real thing, and I've gone out of my way to... I use this I hate to use this word, but to educate them on that myself. So it depends on the person too. So I've sent articles to them, I've sent have a read of this, or what do you think of this? And there are still times where... When I'm experiencing anxiety, my mum will tell me, are you taking your medications? I don't like that. Or, have you done yoga? Are you doing this? Um, it'd be nice to just have someone hear you out. Um, and it's hard maintaining that relationship with your parents when it comes to having a mental illness because because of the cultural issues, for starters, and secondly, because they are your parents and they always want the best for you. It's always better to speak to someone who's independent.
0: OK, well, we need to finish up this. Join me in thanking our wonderful panel. Thank you for listening. If you want to hear more of our podcasts, subscribe to Black Dog Institute on iTunes. If you're interested in knowing more about our educational programs and research, please visit our website at blackdog.org.au.